Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. We are recording this podcast episode on Thursday, August 11th. So on Sunday, August 7th, the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act, a sweeping package to combat climate change, lower healthcare costs, and raise taxes. We'll obviously be talking about the taxes on this episode of the podcast, and specifically the book minimum tax, the corporate AMT included in the bill. Who would it apply to? How can it produce some surprising results? And how might it interact with the Pillar 2 Globe Rules? For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by Jennifer Gray, a director in KPMG's Legislative Affairs Group and formerly a tax counsel at the Senate. Doug Palms, a principal in KPMG's International Tax Practice and formerly International Tax Counsel at Treasury. Jonathan Galen, a senior manager in the same practice, and Marcus Heeland, a managing director in KPMG's Economic Valuation Services practice, and formerly an advisor at the OECD. Welcome all. Hi, Gary. Hi, Gary. Hi, Gary. Great to be here. So it's been a long and winding road. In November 2021, the House passed the Reconciliation Bill, the Build Back Better Act, or BBBA. This is when the BBVA included many trillions of spending. It was effectively a progressive Democrats wish list. Then in December 2021, soon before the holidays, Senator Manchin appeared on Fox News to announce that he would not, could not vote for the BBVA. It seemed dead at the time, but then was resurrected again as a skinny BBVA. Then Manchin killed it again last month, and then miraculously it was reborn yet again, but this time as the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. Jennifer, what happened and how did the Dems ultimately get Manchin and the other recalcitrant Senator Kristen Sinema on board? You know, honestly, it was a a bit of a surprise. We understood that discussions were going on between Manchin and Senator Schumer with regard to prescription drugs issues and, and possibly some other things. But, you know, when the announcement was made, the agreement that they had come to was significantly broader than folks had anticipated. Now, obviously, as you pointed out, compared to the House bill from last fall, it's significantly smaller. But the discussions that went on were between Manchin and Schumer. And then, of course, they had to make sure that all the other 48 Democrats were on board, including Senator Sinema, where most of the focus was. And, you know, Sinema and Manchin often get lumped together. But when it comes to this bill, they did seem to have very different focuses. Um, You know, Sinema seemed from the get-go very focused on tax issues. In fact, some of the changes that happened in the House bills and went through the process, the bill that passed the, the floor of the House was not the same tax bill that came out of the Ways and Means Committee, which is a quite unusual situation. And from what we understand, a number of the changes, including the addition of the corporate minimum tax, into that House bill were at least somewhat responsive to concerns that Cinema had. So she had mentioned a number of things about taxes. And it's on Sunday from the time it was 
release by Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer until the time it passed, a number of changes were made in the tax portions, and the majority of those were made at the behest of Senator Sinema, including taking out carried interest, a number of changes in the details to the uh, corporate minimum tax, as well as some other changes. And then, you know, Senator Manchin seemed to be very focused on the spending side, uh, what impact additional spending could have on inflation in the economy. And I think a big decision point for him was the fact that this bill uh, actually raises more revenue than it spends. So it has a net or is estimated to have a net decrease on the overall deficit of the U.S. And so I think uh, that had a big impact on him as well as he was very focused on some of the non-tax issues, prescription drugs, but him being from West Virginia, very especially he was focused on, on energy issues. And he stated his position that he feels like this bill is very balanced um, on the energy side, both with fossil fuels and clean energy. So you, you touched on it a little bit, but in addition to the corporate AMT, which we will discuss later, what other tax provisions were included in the IRA and what rules were left on the cutting room floor? You know, what ended up being in, there are actually only five revenue raisers. That's pretty unusual. Certainly, usually in a bill this size, you just see all types of small revenue raisers here and there, but we really only have five here. We have the corporate minimum tax, 1% excise tax on stock buybacks, a reinstatement of the Superfund tax for oil and gas, a permanent extension of the black lung tax. And then on the floor of the Senate was added in a two-year extension of the 461L loss limitation. On the other side, also in here, obviously tons of energy incentives, items with regard to healthcare for individuals and a number of other things. You know, what's out? You know, carried interest had originally been in that bill that Senator Manchin, Senator Schumer announced. That came out, again, as we understand it, at the request of Senator Sinema. Also, there's nothing in there on salt. That was a big issue for a lot of Democrats, particularly a lot of Northeastern Democrats in the House. There's nothing in there on the salt cap, no changes there. And also there's nothing on international of particular interest to this audience. The changes on guilty and beat and all the other international items that were in that House bill, a number of those at least focused on the OECD, those are not in this bill. Yeah, that was a noticeable omission. We're going to have to see how that impacts the BEPS 2.0 deal on Pillar 2 and indeed Pillar 1 that the U.S. hasn't been able to satisfy its obligations. Now the bill goes to the House. What do you expect to happen now? Well, the Majority Leader, Senny Hoyer, has indicated he expects the House to vote on that bill on Friday, August 12th. And the expectation, at least among the House leadership, is that that bill will pass. The House Democrats only have four votes to spare. So we will see if they have any problems, but at least publicly they're indicating they do expect that bill to pass. Jennifer, do you expect the House to make any changes to this bill? We do not. Technically they can, but if, if they change even a comma, then the bill would have to go back to the Senate and the Senate would have to pass that again. And that's, you know, really two problems. One is logistical. The senators have gone back to their states for August recess for their work period and they'd have to get them back, which is difficult to do. And then two, probably more importantly, politically, honestly, this bill really went by by the skin of its teeth with a tie-breaking vote uh, by the vice president. And so any little change could maybe uh, mess up that very, very delicate political balance that allow this bill to go through in the Senate. Thanks, Jennifer. Now that the end of the proverbial legislative road to a reconciliation bill is near and has cleared a major senatorial hurdle, let's lift the hood of the new corporate AMT regime and talk about some of the details. 
We've touched on the corporate AMT during a prior episode of the podcast during the flurry of activity in late 2021 related to the BBVA. Doug, can you let us know who is potentially in scope and when should they start caring? Sure thing, Gary. First of all, the listeners should take note that this provision of the corporate AMT takes effect immediately, meaning it applies to tax years beginning in 2023. So this should be of immediate concern to those taxpayers that are scoped in. But you asked who is scoped in. I mean, we're talking about the largest of taxpayers. This provision will apply to multinational groups that are very large. The rules require that they have a three-year average of a billion dollars of adjusted financial statement at income. The provision applies to both U.S. parented multinational groups as well as foreign parented that are of that size. But for foreign parented multinational groups, there's a second requirement that the group have at least 100 million of U.S. related adjusted financial statement net income for that same three year period. During the debate of the Senate bill recently, it was estimated by the Congressional Research Service that approximately 150 multinational groups potentially were in scope for this provision. So we're, it is a relatively small set of taxpayers and certainly not, it's not a provision that would affect small business. But for those taxpayers that are that large, it's important for them to take note of it. Thanks, Doug. Before we get into like the practical impacts of the corporate AMT, can you give us a sort of a high-level description or overview of, of how this corporate AMT regime works? Absolutely, Gary. In computing the corporate alternative minimum tax, a taxpayer would take its adjusted financial statement income and consider any net operating loss that it could carry forward into the year subject to certain limitations take that number and apply a 15% rate to that number, and then take into consideration any corporate AMT that that taxpayer may have, and then come to what's called the tentative minimum tax. And then the taxpayer would compare its tentative minimum tax to its regular tax plus its B and see if there's any difference. And if there is a difference, that amount may be reduced by general business credits to come up with the ultimate corporate alternative minimum tax number. And if there is AMT liability in a given year, you do get a credit, an AMT credit that you can carry forward indefinitely and apply against the taxpayer's regular tax in a subsequent year. So in many ways, the corporate minimum tax is designed to address timing and it it just can be viewed as a prepayment of regular taxes, um, though, as we'll discuss more, it could in certain cases apply to permanent differences as well. And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that there are many areas in the corporate AMT that still remain uncertain. There are 17 grants of regulatory authority to fill in substantive gaps in this new regime. So a lot of guidance is expected to fill in these gaps in the coming months and years as this regime goes into effect. So as I noted, we did a podcast episode in late 2021 on the BBBA version of the minimum tax. It's called uh, Back to the Build Back Better Act, Doing the Bare Minimum. Doug, could you let us know what some of the bigger changes are from the BBBA version to this version? 
first I would note that the this version is in the Inflation Reduction Act is very similar to the BBBA version, but there are key differences. Um, one of them is that, and this was a, a change that was made late in the process, but the corporate minimum tax would use tax depreciation numbers instead of book numbers. So they would not tax book tax differences related to depreciation, and that's specifically under Section 167 for property described in Section 168. And then that doesn't apply to other cost recovery rules, except there is a small special exception for the amortization under 197 for certain wireless telecommunication companies spectrum that was acquired after 2007. But overall, this this change would favor capital intensive industries and give them a competitive advantage over industries that use other types of cost recovery rules such as depletion. This difference vis-a-vis the Build Back Better Act creates also an interesting distortion between companies that may have made huge capital expenditures prior to 2020 or even prior to 2023, where they took a huge amount of bonus depreciation. And now in in these coming years, will be taking the depreciation on their books. So they will not get the benefit of their book depreciation unless they have new capital expenditures will not have tax depreciation. So that's an interesting distortion vis-a-vis what would have been the case under the Build Back Better Act version of the bill. Along those lines, if one distortion we also might see for the rest of the year is that there would be incentives to make capital expenditures next year to when the alternative minimum tax applies to get the benefit of that tax depreciation. So taxpayers may hold off on making capital expenditures for the last five months of the year. There are also differences in the way that the NOL carry forward rules work for the three-year average to see if a tax Payer is an applicable corporation for the min tax, where the NOL carry forwards are not considered, just NOLs are considered in the year that they're generated. There are also changes with respect to fair value accounting for minority investments in corporations. Fair value accounting is similar to a mark to market regime. The new version of the bill would say you, you would back out any uh, fair value accounting or mark-to-market that's done with respect to the minority investments, and instead you would only consider dividends from those entities or certain other tax-related amounts for inclusions and losses. Finally, uh, there were changes made. These were changes that were actually first proposed in the Senate version of the BBVA, but also in the Inflation Reduction Act that use tax uh, numbers for your defined pension plan accounting numbers instead of your book numbers. Thanks, Doug. Now let's dig deeper and talk about who is actually going to pay the corporate AMT. Jonathan, what's the profile of the large multinationals that are likely to be affected by the corporate AMT? First off, let's just quickly acknowledge that um, while corporate AMT regime provides credit carry forwards, the fact is that it sure seems that a lot of taxpayers that 
will be subject to the corporate AMT could be chronic corporate AMT taxpayers as opposed to just flipping in and out of corporate AMT liability position. And that's partly because or largely because it applies to both timing and permanent differences, as Doug had kind of flagged earlier. And so the profile of the you know, types of large groups that are likely to be affected by affected here, meaning that the regular corporate AMT tax liability year over year include companies that or groups that claim substantial stock-based compensation expense and deductions, companies with that engage in a lot of uh, M&A activity that results in significant basis step-up in tax amortizable assets. You know, as Doug had mentioned, while the bill was addressed at the 11th hour to allow for book tax harmonization as it relates to tax depreciation on tangible depreciable property, no such treatment is afforded with respect to amortizable assets, except for that small carve out with respect to that kind of uh, qualified spectrum wireless telecom clients. And so what that means is in particular with respect to you know goodwill or trademarks going concern value, these long live intangibles that would create a uh, you know, very significant delta between book and tax that could put those types of clients that are on, engaged in this ongoing M&A activity in a kind of perpetual Corp AMT liability position. Also, groups with large FIDI deductions, given that the FIDI rate remains at 13 and an eighth percent, that also can, if not by itself, although maybe for some taxpayers it could, at, uh, certainly in conjunction with some of the other differences, could cause, once again, you know, recurring corporate AMT liability. And one thing that we noticed in terms of a transition issue is companies with large pre-2020 net operating loss carry-forwards and certain other pre-2023 tax attribute carry-forwards can also be significantly impacted, especially in the initial years. And that's in part because speaking to kind of the net operating loss carry-forward rules, there's a special rule that provides that financial statement net operating losses that are incurred in post-2019 tax years can be available to be carried forward to reduce the corporate AMT tax base beginning in 2023. However, pre-2020 losses are not available to reduce the corporate AMT tax base. So for those taxpayers that have substantial pre-2020 net operating losses for taxable income purposes, that can also create a permanent difference. And last but not least, uh, groups with substantial offshore CFC level earnings will also potentially have permanent differences that could result in, uh, once again, recurring chronic corporate AMT liability. And that is because, unlike the BBBA, which would have increased the guilty rate to 15%, the Inflation Reduction Act does not change the relevant guilty rates. Whereas, and we'll cover soon, hopefully, the offshore earnings at CFC level earnings are subject to a 15% rate of tax under the corporate AMT system. So this is an international tax podcast. So let's dig deeper on how the corporate AMT applies to offshore earnings. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Well, let's start with CFCs. Under the regular tax system, a U.S. shareholder was picking up CFC level income under sub-half for guilty. It's important to note, however, that under the corporate AMT system, we are not only looking to sub-F earnings or guilty tested income earnings. Instead, a taxpayer would include pro rata share of all aggregate CFC-adjusted financial statement income. 
There is no QBI concept. There's no 245 cap A type concept built into the corporate AMT regime. Also, as I just noted a little earlier, there's no preferential rate as applied to these offshore CFC level earnings. All earnings are subject to tax by the U.S. shareholder at the same rate, 15%. One other thing to note is that if there are aggregate net CFC level losses, those losses are not taken into account by the U.S. shareholder in, for purposes of determining that U.S. shareholders' current year adjusted financial statement income. In other words, those losses are trapped at the CFC level. There is one form of, of somewhat generous treatment in the sense of that at least those losses can be carried forward to future years. So if on an aggregate basis, the CFCs have a, are in a net loss position in year one and otherwise are in a net positive income position in year two, those losses from year one can be used and applied to reduce the year two CFC level income. So now we briefly touched on CFCs. Let's really quickly touch on branches. Foreign branch income subject to the same rate of tax as CFC level income, as I mentioned before, 15%. One notable difference, however, is that with respect when we have branch losses, those branch losses can be used by the U.S. taxpayer to offset non-branch income in such year. So that's a big difference from CFC level losses, which are you know otherwise trapped and can only reduce CFC level income. Jonathan, Doug mentioned earlier the corporate AMT FTC foreign tax credit. How how does that work? The corporate AMT system does provide for AMT FTCs, unlike the regular tax system where a lot of focus on FTCs is about the you know section 904 FTC limitation and expense allocation apportionment. There is no expense allocation apportionment with respect to corporate AMT FTCs. Those rules are that, that is not built into the system. And therefore, broadly speaking, there's no FTC limitation with respect to foreign taxes that are you know, paid by the U.S. taxpayer, including on branches, DREs, directly held by the U.S. taxpayer, indirectly held through other fiscally transparent entities. In effect, those foreign taxes seemingly are available to cross-credit any type of income, foreign source, U.S. source, and even CFC level income. There is a difference, however, when it comes to the foreign taxes paid by CFCs. For that purpose, there is a foreign tax credit limitation that applies, or kind of a de facto foreign tax credit limitation. And, 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 and the way that works is that the amount of foreign CFC level foreign taxes that can be pulled up and, and incorporated in uh, taxpayers' AMT FTCs in a given year will be limited to their pro rata share of the CFC level adjusted financial statement earnings times the applicable rate here being 15%. If on an aggregate basis, the CFCs are high tax, and for this purpose, high tax being above 15% effective rate on adjusted financial statement income, then that excess portion of those foreign taxes are available to be carried forward. They cannot be used in the current year, but they can be carried forward for up to five years. That said, provides cold comfort if taxpayers has uh, in aggregate CFCs that are kind of perpetually in, in high tax situations, as they, although they would have credit carry forwards, it would be unlikely to be able to use those. One in interesting observation with respect to this kind of disparate treatment of CFC level foreign taxes and all other creditable foreign taxes is that it may be preferable, at least from a corporate AMT perspective, to operate foreign operations in branch form rather than via a foreign corporate subsidiary 
especially since there's no tax rate differential on these CFC level earnings vis-a-vis the kind of other U.S. level earnings or, or via the branch. Both are subject to 15%. And, and this is different from how the existing you know, regular tax system works with the guilty rate. And the rules with respect to kind of this preference for branch over CFC operation, you know, is also evident in the fact that unlike CFC level losses, as mentioned before, other losses from foreign operations operating in branch form can be used to offset other, including domestic level earnings. Let's turn to everyone's favorite subject, compliance and administrability. How are people in tax departments out there going to apply these rules? Doug, is it as simple as just pulling the 10K consolidated financial statement for the global group and making a few quick adjustments to determine whether a taxpayer is in scope and what their corporate AMT liability is? Gary, it's definitely not as simple as that. This regime, this new regime, is going to have to interact with our increasingly complicated international tax system in the U.S., since the enactment of TCJA, we now have you know regular tax computation with international implications, beat, guilty, and now this new corporate AMT. And as you and Marcus will discuss the possibility that Pillar 2 rules would go into effect and how they would interact with this new regime. So much complexity added to the system that it's not simply doing a, a manual calculation. And I, and I would just want to interject here also just to add that, you know, although the language you know, in this uh, draft bill seems you know, a bit clumsy and difficult to decipher in certain key places, it, it does appear that taxpayers will need to disaggregate their consolidated financials to re- effectively reverse out intercompany items, unless those intercompany items are, are between members of the same consolidated tax return group, to uh, effectively arrive at pre-consolidated, you know, financial accounts. And so this can require uh, potentially, you know, tax and accounting, finance departments to build out systems that just do not currently exist in their company. And as a reminder, we're now less than half a year away from when this corporate AMT regime will go into effect. And so it certainly seems that this new regime is going to be keeping folks in industry, us and, you know, the accounting firms, uh, all quite busy, at least over the next several months, as we really begin to get our arms around this monumental change. And not to mention, the government will also be very busy. Treasury and IRS will have to put out, as we've said, uh, immediate guidance to address some of these questions and, and regulation over the longer term, and that, that will be a heavy lift for them, too. Thanks, Doug, and thanks, Jonathan. Okay, let's turn to how the book mint tax compares to and interacts with the pillar two mint tax we've discussed on many episodes of the podcast the pillar two globe rules marcus can you give a high level comparison of the differences between the corporate amt book mint tax and the pillar two mint tax you know, one difference just right out of the gates is it, you know, applies to a different population of taxpayers. So the scope is different. For, for the U.S. book min tax and focusing on U.S.-based multinationals, there's a $1 billion global financial statement income threshold, whereas Pillar 2 uses a 750 million euro global revenue threshold. 
So the first big difference with respect to these two regimes is that they just apply to the pillar two applies to a much broader population of of um, multinationals. The the rate that's used, you know, both 15 percent for for both. Uh, but importantly, that rate is applied to, you know, at a different level of blending. So the U.S. book min tax is, you know, applying that rate, looking at an overall global picture. But it's it's not actually global because there's a you know a limitation in there on aggregate CFC income. There's a it's limited to just 15% of the taxes on the CFC piece. So it's sort of global blending with a limitation at the aggregate foreign level. Whereas pillar two is jurisdictional. So you're taking the income and tax in every jurisdiction and testing whether it's it's above or below that 15% threshold. So this is probably the biggest difference between between the two regimes is just how that 15% minimum rate is is tested. There's also differences with respect to the tax base. So they both use financial statement accounting for purposes of determining the income, uh, but the adjustments that are used um, are quite different. For for example, one of the adjustments in pillar two is there's a an election to to essentially take out your book tax expense for stock-based compensation and substitute in your tax deduction, uh, whereas there's no analog for that in the U.S. book min tax. There's also significant differences with respect to how net operating losses are treated. So the, the U.S. book min tax provides for a deduction for financial statement net operating losses with a very limited transition rule. Pillar two uses a completely different mechanism. So instead of using a NOL, uh, it uses a deferred tax asset mechanism. And the transition rule for historical losses is much more generous. The way that other types of timing differences are dealt with is also different. So the US book min tax uses a indefinite credit carry forward mechanism to smooth out timing differences over time. Whereas pillar two, again, uses a completely different mechanism. So instead of using a credit carry forward uh, technique, it instead uses deferred tax accounting with a number of adjustments. There's also material differences with how certain tax credits are treated, uh, in particular, how general business credits are treated. So those types of credits are generally protected under the US bookman tax subject to certain limitations. Whereas under pillar two, you know, general business credits are often, you know, the most common ingredient for why a multinational would be low tax. So there is no protection provided in pillar two for general business credits, potentially with the exception of certain credits that come through um, equity method accounted entities. And then finally, another notable deviation between these two regimes is with respect to a substance carve out. So there is no substance exclusion for the U.S. book min tax, whereas Pillar 2 allows for an exclusion of an amount uh, for a fixed return on payroll and tangible assets. So as you can see, Gary, um, some you know very fundamental differences between these two regimes. Thanks, Marcus. Let's dig a little deeper into how certain common tax incentives would fare differently under each of these regimes. Could you give us some examples? Yeah, you know, I think it's, you know, based off that overview that I've just provided and and all those differences, you know, one thing that comes out of it is, is, as you say, a number of common tax incentives are just treated very differently. 
I've already made reference to the difference in treatment for general business credits, which are generally okay under the U.S. book min tax, you know, subject to a limitation. Whereas under Pillar Two, it's it's those types of credits that most commonly, you know, are what the you know main ingredient is for top up tax under Pillar Two. You also have differences with how stock based compensation is treated. So this seems to be one of the primary items that is the focus of the U.S. book min tax. So stock-based compensation book tax differences can trigger top of tax under the U.S. min tax, whereas under Pillar 2, there's this election that essentially allows that book tax difference uh, to be eliminated such that you know, stock-based compensation differences are generally okay under Pillar 2. And then finally, you know, another common one is, is of course, you know, NOL and loss recovery. Recovering losses could trigger top-up tax under the U.S. minimum tax if they relate to pre-2020 losses, whereas under Pillar 2, generally historic losses are are okay uh, through a deferred tax asset mechanism. So as you can see, Gary, with respect to general business credits, stock-based compensation, and loss recovery, there's the potential for very different outcomes um, under U.S. book min tax versus Pillar 2. So as you noted, the book Mintax applies at a global level as opposed to Pillar 2, which applies on a jurisdictional basis. But as Doug and Jonathan already explained, the computation of the book Mintax effectively ring fences domestic from foreign income, or at least income earned by CFCs. Is it possible that the book Mintax could be accepted as a qualifying domestic minimum top-up tax, or a so-called QDMTT, by the members of the inclusive framework? I think it is probably unlikely. And the main reason I say that is because, you know, what I had mentioned earlier about uh, general business credits, you know, R&D credit, for example, being, you know, protected under the Bookman tax uh, compared to Pillar 2, which would, you know, an R&D credit would reduce current tax expense and so drive down the ETR. And so I think that is probably the the biggest inconsistency between the two regimes, which I think would cause some members of the inclusive framework to question whether this is, should be treated as a qualified domestic top-up tax. But, you know, the other side of that is, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, there's a number of other items that go the other direction. So the uh, you know, this U.S. bookman tax is, you know, less favorable or harsher with respect to a number of, of other items, including stock-based compensation and losses. So you could potentially see uh, an argument that putting everything together and looking looking at it on balance, you know, maybe there is an argument that this U.S. bookman tax uh, should be treated as a qualified domestic top-up tax. The, the other point here is that, you know, the, the scope is very different. So even if this were to be treated as a qualified domestic top of tax, presumably that would only be with respect to taxpayers that were subject to the tax. So, you know, I think it we, we don't know the answer to that yet, Gary. I think it will be something that will likely be discussed within the inclusive framework. I think there's reason to think that there's unlikely that the U.S. bookman tax would be a QDMTT. But as I say, there are some arguments in, in that uh, in that direction. How about with respect to foreign income? Any chance this could be accepted as a qualifying income inclusion rule or IIR, or barring that, a CFC tax regime? With the IIR, I think I can be more uh, clear there. So I think 
very unlikely that it would be treated as a qualified income inclusion rule for the simple reason that the you know the level of blending is fundamentally different though you know this would allow taxes in a high tax foreign jurisdiction to be blended with low taxes in a low tax foreign jurisdiction and that's just fundamentally inconsistent with the pillar 2 regime which is country by country so it seems very unlikely that this regime would be treated as a as a qualifying income inclusion rule and so if it's not that it you know leads to the question of what is it and i think you're right to point to cfc tax regime as the most likely uh, way that this would that this regime would be treated and so any taxes that are paid uh, with respect to cfc earnings would be pushed down to the jurisdiction where those you know taxes relate subject to question of as to how exactly is that determination made as to which jurisdiction that the taxes should be attributed to but i think it it does seem likely that it will be treated as a cfc tax regime similar to guilty so in order to calculate the top up tax for a jurisdiction under pillar 2 you have to first compute the amount of covered taxes allocated to that jurisdiction could the book min tax be treated as a covered tax for purposes of pillar 2 yes i think it would be considered a covered tax um, and and that's a threshold question so you know it, only if it is treated as a covered tax would it be pushed down to foreign jurisdictions so i think the first question is is it a cover tax i think there it seems like it should be and then and then if that's right th then you get into you know how do you diagnose those taxes is it is it a cfc regime and if it is a cfc regime then you'd have to come up with a mechanism to attribute them down to the relevant jurisdiction so as we've discussed the book min tax moves out timing differences through a credit carry forward mechanism how could this credit carry forward from the book min tax impact the pillar two computation yeah i think as companies start to model this you know there's going to be you know as is always the case non-intuitive interactions that come out of it and one non-intuitive interaction that you know we have seen with just some very preliminary modeling around this is that you know that credit carry forward mechanism that is used to manage timing differences for purposes of the book bin tax that would presumably give rise to a deferred tax asset in the year that it is recorded. So when you have um, you know a carry forward, you'd put up a deferred tax asset. Pillar two, you know, one of the adjustments that's made to the deferred tax accounts is that deferred tax assets related to the generation and use of tax credits are essentially disregarded. And so I think there is there seems to be a possibility that in the year where the book min tax credit carry forward is utilized so when you take down that dta your current tax expense is going to be a relatively low number uh, and then you're counting on the reversal of the dta to get you an increase to your income tax expense but pillar two disregards that deferred tax asset and so all you're left with is just a you know relatively small current tax expense number and so that could then uh, trigger additional tax under pillar two um, and so that's one interaction that that you know we're seeing thank you marcus as well as jennifer doug and jonathan i'm now recording this postscript on monday august 15th and i can confirm consistent with jennifer's predictions that the house dems passed the ira on a party line vote on friday 
without touching even a single comma in the Senate version. So the bill goes to the president, who's expected to sign it into law later this week. I can also confirm that I'm mostly over the cold that dogged me throughout the recording and that I at all times tested negative for COVID. Thanks for asking. In any case, that the corporate AMT, the CAMPT, was the only international tax provision to survive the long and arduous process to pass the reconciliation bill is certainly surprising. But it will become law shortly, and taxpayers will have to get up to speed fast. As Doug explained, the book Min Tax will kick in for tax years beginning after December 31st of this year. Indeed, as tax professionals, many of us, particularly those with a legal background, will have to learn a new and difficult language, the language of tax accounting. Whether you like it or not, and as a lawyer, I'm generally not enthused, those drafting min tax laws in this country and abroad are incorporating more and more financial statement accounting concepts into the tax law. Exhibit A is the corporate AMT. Exhibit B is pillar two. We will, of course, endeavor to teach you these complex new rules, just as we ourselves endeavor to learn them. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these and other developments in U.S. international tax. Until our next episode, take care. 